We recorded this interview at the end of February when the world was somewhat different to how it is now. So I wanted to just give Adam the opportunity to give a few updates uh, relevant to um, SEND um, and the work that NASEN are doing before we go into the recorded interview. So Adam, over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, in recent days and weeks, NASEN has been receiving numerous questions about how school closures and the consequences of COVID-19 more broadly would impact on uh, children and young people with SEND. So what we've actually done is based on kind of latest information available, we try to bring together these responses to one central place rather than just providing lots of individual responses. And then to share those responses with uh, anybody who wants to see them really, the wider community. And what we've done is um, they put them all on the NASEN website. Um, and to get to those, if you go to the NASEN homepage, nasen.org.uk, there's a link that will take you straight there. On that same page, you'll also find a, a letter of advice which I sent to the Director of Children's Services in every local authority in the country. That was back in uh, late March, um, and that was really related to um, the decision as to whether children with SEN should be going to school or staying at home and, the, and some of the tensions and principles that might exist around that, and that is, I think, quite useful advice uh, to be looking at. The only final thing I wanted to update on was just to talk about how Nathan is communicating with government at this, uh, uh, this really key point in time. Um, the government is obviously taking advice from lots of experts and lots of organisations, um, but it was quite clear that from the schools side of things, uh, and particularly in relation to SEND, um, lots of the voices are from different parts of the sector. So, so what's happened is we've established um, a national SEND reference group which brings together about 20 of the key voices uh, from the kind of schools uh, and SEND community to really be in one place and, and help government on some of the nuance, I suppose, of its messaging. Uh, you know, for example, the general advice that goes out for schools in its broadest sense may not always work um, for, um, you know, those with very complex medical needs or uh, alternative provisions in some cases. So it was just helping the government really to get some of that messaging right so there are not unintended consequences in the system. And again, you can find out more about that group in terms of reference, the membership and so on, by going to the NASEN website and you can find more out there. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Adam. And we'll have uh, links to those pages in the, the notes from this podcast as well. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. Before we begin, I'd like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. I am delighted to be welcoming Dr. Adam Bodison, CEO of Nason, uh, to our offices today. Um, Adam has a fascinating biography, uh, taking in a wide variety of teaching and, and leadership roles, um, being the founding director for the Centre of Professional Education at the University of Warwick, uh, with a portfolio spanning teacher training, professional development, international education, as well as being a qualified clinical hypnotherapist and having written a book about maths and magic. Uh, so, uh, Adam, welcome. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. <laughs> um, 
I just wanted um, to g- give you the opportunities to tell uh, listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, Nason and, and what, you, what you do. Well, I think you've said lots about me already, <laughs> um, uh, and I'm really delighted, actually, to have the opportunity to come here today to talk about special educational needs uh, and disabilities in particular, because it's an area that I kind of ended up in by accident. Mm. You know, my background obviously is in teaching and in education and teacher training and development. Um, but I suppose a few years ago I was looking for something different to do um, and, and, and I'd always kind of circled around SEN in one way or another and then this opportunity came up to come and mm. work with Nason uh, and, and actually it was one of the most professionally rewarding uh, moves I've ever made because the, you know, to get out of bed every morning and know that the job that you're doing is actually making a difference mm. uh, to some of the most vulnerable people in our school system actually is... is really gets me going you know yeah. and, uh, and 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 i enjoy that um if i tell you a little bit about nason so uh, nason is the national association for special educational needs it's a professional membership body um for the send workforce um and i and that's a fairly broad interpretation uh, in years gone by people would have known us for being the professional body just for senkos but it's a much broader church now mm. and i suppose it's anybody working with children young people uh, with with send so that could be senkos school leaders teachers very specialist uh, uh, professionals, it could be uh, academics, and, and that could come from a range of disciplines, not just in education, also from health and social care. And we even have families and young people as part oh, really? of that membership uh, okay. as well. So very diverse. Indeed. Um, and what are your kind of priorities uh, as an, as an organisation mm. at the moment? Yeah, I mean, one, one, one of the descriptions I use for Nason is that I sometimes think of us as the champion, friend and protector of the SEND community, uh, which is which is it rolls off the tongue yeah, nicely. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> um, but, but, but really, it's about doing the right thing. Um, so mm. what does that look like in practice? Well, we provide CPD and training uh, for primarily for school-based staff, but also resources, information, a whole range of SEND services, actually. And, and I suppose if anybody is new to Nason or not heard of Nason before, there are three resources uh, in particular that I think are good starting points, mm-hmm. a good way in to f- kind of yeah. join the Nason family, as it were. Um, the first one is that Nason has a whole suite of mini guides. Mm. Um, uh, they're freely available. Uh, some of them are uh, DFE funded, um, Department for Education funded. Uh, some of them are things that Nason have themselves invested in. But they cover a whole range of topics uh, and they bring together kind of policy, research and practice. So, for example, one of the most popular ones is around girls and autism and the under-identification yeah. uh, of girls with autism. Um, there's one we've just done recently on uh, medical needs and how they might be met in schools, mm. uh, transition and preparation for adulthood. And there's a whole range of them, mm. but well worth a look. Second thing I'd point out is the Whole School Send Consortium, uh, which is a whole group of organisations working together to deliver a a workforce development contract for the Department for Education. They have produced a whole load of materials, again, which are freely available around special educational needs and disabilities. Um, And, uh, you know, everything from a kind of an an induction pack for new Senkos right through to kind of uh, videos that that, that describe what you should do if you've got someone in your class with a particular type of need and you don't know where to start. Yeah, that sounds like it could be really useful, especially for class teachers and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, and then the last one, just on the kind of research side of things, I suppose, we've just recently published um, uh, the National Senko Workload Survey. It's something we've 
we're making an annual event really and that's uh, a big survey of uh, between 1500 and 2000 senkos getting a sense of what they spend their time on mm. uh, what are their priorities what are they finding difficult in schools and and it makes some recommendations for how to get the most out of senkos really so for school leaders thinking how do i yeah. best deploy them but also for senkos themselves to say actually am i spending my times on those mm. things which are going to have the biggest impact for young people so a really good piece of research to have a look at there as well and that's available on the uh, bath spa university website and what were some of the findings there i know i think i read some some stuff in the press around um admin being a huge burden. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? If you if you you've got a situation here where you've got almost three quarters of Senko saying that the vast majority of their time is spent on uh, uh, paperwork, mm. and if that's the case, uh, and these are a very highly qualified group, you know, because Senkos have to have a qualified teacher status as well as having a level seven mm. master's qualification for the National Senko uh, Award, and probably a whole raft of other qualifications uh, that they've picked up along yeah. the way. But if they're spending all their time on paperwork, that is a very expensive administrator. Oof, yeah. And so I would be saying, look, you know, is there something that school leaders could do to maybe free up some administration from elsewhere that could actually mm. allow their Senko to spend more of their time on uh, improving teaching and learning and thinking about differentiation in the classroom and, and that kind of broader, inclusive teaching and learning offer? Yeah, getting, getting, getting that expertise back, back to the, the children and not on Absolutely. The, the paperwork there. Um, and so we are just a little bit over a term into the, the new inspection framework. What are your thoughts about, about how well it, it recognises and assesses schools' SEND offering? So I, I think Ofsted are a real force for good at the moment, and I think three years ago I could never have possibly imagined myself <laughs> saying that. Not, maybe not every <laughs> listener will agree with that, but, um, um, but tell us more why you think that. Well, you, you know, my, my, I've been fairly critical, I think, of Ofsted over the, the last few years, but one of my challenges, I suppose, to them has been the previous framework in many ways penalised schools who were inclusive. Yeah. Um, because the, the reality was that schools that chose to be inclusive generally got a reputation for being inclusive. Every other mm. parent in the area, other schools in the area knew that's the school to get your children if you yeah. want, if they've got particular needs and you need them to be met. And, and those schools became what I, I describe as send magnets. Uh, and so they become overwhelmed with mm. need and therefore they really struggle to, to hit the kind of uh, attainment targets around data. And, and actually, uh, I, th I think it's fair to say that uh, a, a very significant factor in uh, the old framework as mm. to how Ofsted made their judgments was around the data. Yeah. And that's one of the fundamental shifts, I think, from the old framework to the new framework. And my challenge to Ofsted really has been no school under this new framework should be able to be graded outstanding unless they can also demonstrate that they're inclusive. Yeah. Um, now, you could say, well, look, under the old framework, there was more than 90% of special schools were graded good or outstanding, and clearly they weren't hitting the data. So mm. in, in a sense, it's not just about the framework, it's about how that's interpreted by inspectors yeah. uh, and then how, how that's actually interpreted by school leaders uh, as well. And so, yes, the framework is right, but the proof is in the pudding, as it were. Mm. Um, and I think it's still quite early to kind of see how that's, uh, that's going to work. Um, I mean, there's some really good things in the framework, worth put, 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 pulling out a few of those. One of the things it says is that Ofsted now will report on uh, any failure to comply with statutory arrangements. And by that, they're talking specifically about the SEND code of practice, 
uh, and the Equality mm. Act. Um, now that's really good because again looking back there were occasions where there were schools that were in breach of the SEND code of practice and Ofsted basically said well it's not our job to uh, you know to check compliance with the SEND code of practice well now they've made it their job yeah. and I think that shows a commitment from Ofsted to actually uh, uh, make sure that schools are, um, are doing the right thing not just in terms of securing outcomes you know, regardless of the <laughs> the means in mm. that sense, but 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 actually to do the right thing on a day to day, and that focus they've got now on curriculum, I think really uh, can help as well if it's interpreted properly. Making sure you've got the right curriculum for uh, a diverse range of young people uh, in a school, I think, is a, a very powerful thing. Um, I, I, one of the concerns I had when the framework first came out was um, that some of the some of the grade descriptors around send and inclusion often were sitting within the good level rather than the outstanding level. Mm. And I was initially concerned that are we saying that actually, you, you know, it doesn't pass my test of being outstanding, if you like. But, but actually, I was, uh, I've become more reassured over time as I've realised that the framework has gone from a best fit model mm. in terms of the grade descriptors to a, a kind of cumulative model. So actually, schools can't access the outstanding grade criteria until they've met all of the good criteria. So yeah. having it in the good now is mm. genuinely a barrier to schools becoming outstanding if they ha are not demonstrating that approach to inclusion, which I think can only be a good thing. Yeah, and, and definitely... Um I mean, I was at the, the launch of the, the Ofsted annual report and there's a real strong sense from the, from the leadership of Ofsted as well that inclusion and how a school um, provides for all pupils is, is a, real, a real focus for them. So as you say, um, so, so, something encouraging, encouraging in signs there, and I know that you've been looking at, at, at um, inspection reports as they've come out um, yeah. On. <laughs> yeah, we've been, we've been looking at them. I, th I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at um, the way in which SEND is mentioned in Ofsted reports, it's often brief, uh, sometimes in relation to things like behaviour, um, mm. which can be a bit of a, a red herring, I think, as yeah. far as it's concerned. I don't think the two are necessarily the same thing. Um, but, but, but also, I think some of it comes down to it's not because inspectors are getting up in the morning and thinking today I want to give a bad deal for children with SEND mm. but, but, but actually there is um, sometimes a, a, a lack of understanding in, in, by some because they've, they've not had mm. um, uh, you know, the right development in that area that could, be, that could be a challenge but also I think people don't want to offend people and this is an area where it's quite easy to get it wrong yeah. you say yeah. the wrong thing or you use some language which is slightly out of date and you can very easily upset somebody mm. so I could easily see a situation where you have an inspector in a school who wants to you know look at what's going on around send but for fear of offense may kind of skirt around the issue yeah. and focus on some other other things instead and I think we've just got to kind of bite the bullet with that and mm. and because uh, it's too important to miss yeah, and I think, I mean, and I, and I speak as, as a governor of a school with a, a very large um, SEND cohort, is that it can be quite difficult as an observer and, and somebody who hasn't, isn't working in the school and doesn't know the children sometimes to understand, evaluate, make an assessment of, of, of things that are, you know, it's a progress is, is, is complex and, and slow and can be... Up, up forward as well as backward for some of those children and actually to kind of say is this is this child getting the, the, the best education that they could be is not a straightforward I've just stuck my head around a classroom door kind of assessment um, so maybe that's part of it too I don't know 
Yeah, I, th I think that's part of it. I, I mean, for those with the most complex needs, of course, if we if they've got a good quality education uh, and healthcare plan, mm. um, uh, sorry, good quality education, health and care plan, then actually that's quite good in terms of listing what. The, the, you know those outcomes should look like mm. for those youngsters um, uh, not just academic outcomes yeah. but a broader notion of that so I think that's a, a good benchmark mm. if you like a, a good way of assessing whether they're getting the right uh, the right input to secure those out, out, outputs I think that the harder group is actually around those who are the 12 percent if you like of youngsters who mm. are who would be on SEN support so actually yeah. they've got SEN but their meet their needs should be able to be met through uh, a classroom teaching and high quality classroom mm. teaching, differentiated uh, approach and so on. That's harder because the expectation is that they are going to make the same levels of progress as other people, but it won't necessarily always be linear. And so you could do all the right things as a school and put all the right things in place, but you don't necessarily see the return, if you like, mm. on that investment immediately. And so the, the, the risk, and I see this quite a lot sometimes, is that you know good things are happening, but then those good things stop happening because they can't see the progress coming mm. straight away. And I, I would uh, really, if I was going to say anything to school leaders who are listening to this, mm. is uh, um, uh, go, go with your professional gut instinct on this. If it looks like it's the right thing and the family and the young person think it's doing the right thing, then even if you're not seeing the results straight away, actually go with it and, and, yeah. and, and, and see where it takes you. And what would your what would your advice um, to school leaders be around, um, given that Ofsted doesn't doesn't have the emphasis on internal data, um, if they're having um, dialogue with inspectors about performance of, of their their SEND cohort, um, you know what what kind of things might they yeah. prepare or show? Well, I, I I think the advice I would give is to be bold. Mm. So I I, went, I used to go into a lot of schools. Not so much now, but certainly going back five, ten years ago, where schools would present their data to Ofsted, and then they present what they called a shadow set of data, which was the data with the SEN children's data removed. I don't see that so much anymore. No. And I think under this new framework, there's an opportunity to say, actually, look at how we're getting it right for these young people. Yeah. And, and my message would be this. If we're getting it right, and my message would be this. If we're getting it right for children young people with SEND, then actually what's good for them is often good practice full stop for yeah. all learners and so it's a good um, it's a good acid test really yeah. for how inclusive the overall curriculum is so don't don't feel that they have to kind of hide away uh, mm. those youngsters and, and, and because their data academically might not be there actually shout, be loud and proud if you like about what's going really well for those youngsters yeah. uh, and if you've got a good relationship with those young people and their families they will also be really keen often to get involved and say do you know what we're we, together you know, we're co-producing a really great offer for, mm. uh, for for this young person. And I think that 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 practice that you mentioned around those sort of two sets of data, it you can see why schools do it, but it's it, it really runs counter to any notion of inclusion. If you start to talk about if we take these children out, yeah. But 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 I think yeah. I, I, as I said before, I don't yeah. think anybody gets out of bed to give a bad deal for, no. for these children. Um, and I don't see it so much now. I'm, I'm talking about years mm. gone by. Uh, and I think that was very much driven by some of the old accountability frameworks mm. of which Ofsted's old framework was one. And that's why when I say about Ofsted being a force for good, this is one of the very direct practical yeah. implementations of lifting some of those um, uh, barriers which had unintended consequences, I suppose, mm. in schools. And, that, and, and, and that's why I think uh, it's now, if you like, in the hands of schools to respond 
well to that because there will mm. be there will be school leaders out there who've had their fingers burnt once or twice by the uh, the wrath of Ofsted yeah, exactly. and having having fundamentally done the right thing and then mm. been penalised somewhere and and you can see why they might be reluctant now to say oh has it really changed um, but my sense is it has changed yeah. and and but it'll only stay changed if we respond as a sector to that and go embrace it really. No, that's and. I guess the other the other major um, thing to to consider really is is funding, um, and we know funding is a pressure all aspects of, of of school, but SEND in particular, and you know for local authorities, there really does seem to be a sense that 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 there just is not a financially sustainable system mm. um, of of SEND funding and that's been emphasized by the National Audit Office um, the report that they did last year and 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 you know every everything we know um, we've had a sort of token additional amount from from the new government what would you, what I mean these national debates will continue of course. and I hope you know hopefully a positive outcome but what advice would you give schools who are who are really struggling to, to cost and fund their sure. provision? Well, I think there are two things here. I mean, if I talk about the systemic stuff first, yeah. and then I'll come on to what, what I think schools can do. So at a system level, um, if you think about what's happened since 2014 and the reforms have come in, there's been a real focus on those with the most complex needs, you know, those mm-hmm. who, would, who would have education, uh, health and care plans. And I think that's been to the detriment of the 13, 12, 13% of, of pupils who've got, uh, who, who are at SEN support. Um, there's been an expectation that schools can just kind of get on with that and, mm. and so on. And, and I think what you've now seen is that young people who would have previously had their needs met by the school are now going through a, a process to secure an education and healthcare plan in order to secure funding and resource to be able to meet need in a way that wouldn't have happened previously. Yeah. So you've got, so that's where some of the pressure on some of the high needs funding is coming from. Not all of it, uh, but certainly some of it. Um, and, and, and so I think, you know, a focus nationally on saying, actually, how do we get it right to SEN support level would help to ease the pressure off that. The other thing as well is if you look at our education system more broadly and how it's funded, if you were doing it, if you were looking at it with a blank sheet, you wouldn't necessarily fund it in the way it's funded now, because we know the all the evidence says that if you can identify needs early, and therefore put provision mm. in place early, then you're going to save yourself time and money and get better outcomes later on. Yeah. Lots of evidence to suggest that. But the reality is, our early years sector is the least well-funded of every sector of yeah. education, and in general, as you go through primary, secondary. FE is a slight exempt, uh, exemption there, exception, uh, right through to HE. Actually, the per head funding goes up at every phase. Mm. Arguably, it should go the other way. And yeah. the, the, you know, because, but, but, but why doesn't it? Well, we know why it doesn't, because if you put investment into early years, you don't see the return on investment for 10, 15, 20 years. And the political life cycle is, what, five years, yeah. if we're lucky at the moment? Exactly. Uh, so, so actually, you, you know, are you going to put your investment into GCSEs where you can say in 12 months' mm-hmm. time, as the de- direct result of what I've done, GCSE results have improved? So, yeah. so there's a bit of a systemic issue there mm. that needs to be, to be addressed. And I think SEN bears the, the brunt of that in some ways. But in terms of your question about what can schools do, what yeah. can schools do? I get asked this question a lot. And the question usually that's asked to me is, what can we do that will uh, cost nothing or very little uh, that will make a difference? And, I, you know, I've got a, a series of things that could be done. And none of them in isolation will solve the problem, but all of them together, I think, can help. 
The first one for me is around the status of, of Ascend in a school mm. and, and in comparison to the status of pupil premium. Yeah. Because, you know, we talked about governors earlier on. If, if I was to talk to any governor, governor in the land mm. and ask about pupil premium, they could probably tell me yeah. how many youngsters with pupil premium they've got in their school, how much money the school receives, what they spend it on and what the impact is. And that's because they get a report every year. Mm. It's a statutory report that they're required to, to yeah. have from the head, which tells them all that information. If I ask the same questions around uh, SEN, mm. I, I think some governors would know, but not all. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, it would cost nothing at the same time as when we're hearing about pupil premium on the same form, same template, yeah. to actually hear about uh, the, how the, um, the SEN notional budget mm. and, and so on is spent as well. Now, we could have a big debate about whether the SEN notional budget actually exists, but we probably won't get drawn into that. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's really interesting. And that group of students in particular mm. where there is overlap between SEN and pupil premium is well worth looking at because, well, one, Ofsted are interested in it in particular, but, but also those students are, if you like, um, double disadvantaged and triple funded. So double disadvantaged in the mm. sense they have SEN and pupil premium. Um, triple funded in, in the sense that there's an element of the SEN notional budget, an element of pupil premium funding and the age weighted, weighted funding as well. Mm. And actually when you start to think of funding in that way, uh, you know, how are we making sure that we're not duplicating what those things are doing and we're using that in a strategically sensible way? Mm. I don't see that conversation happening as much as I would like. Mm. Um, so second, that's the first thing. Second thing for me is around how do we really make send everybody's responsibility and I think safeguarding is a really good analogy yeah. if I if I ask teachers whose responsibility is safeguarding I get the same answer now I would have got 20 years ago which is safeguarding is everybody's responsibility but it's different now because mm. 20 years ago that meant it's everybody's responsibility therefore I don't need to worry about it because someone else will do it and that's how things were going wrong whereas yeah. now I think in schools everybody understands that there's a safeguarding lead and mm. they have coordination responsibility but actually they see themselves whatever role they have in the school as yeah. having some part to play that journey that we've been on with safeguarding that's the journey we want to go on with SEND so yes the SENCO will, will coordinate SEND mm. in a school but what is my role in terms of making sure that we are inclusive as a school and we're meeting the needs of children with SEND? And, and, and I would ask schools to reflect on how they went on that journey with safeguarding and see if they can replicate that mm. for SEND. It doesn't need to cost anything. It's a philosophy, I think. Mm. Um, the next one for me is um, we hear in the code of practice, every teacher, a teacher of SEND. Well, the reality is to, to, to do that properly, uh, we need every leader to be a leader mm. of SEND. Um, and, and that doesn't stop with school leaders, that goes right up to, yeah. to board level. So what does that mean? Well, um, uh, uh, for example, I would say uh, at board level, how many uh, governors on the board could name the four broad areas of need? That would be my first mm. question. Um, because if, as a board, we don't know the four broad areas of need, that means when we're making strategic decisions about school funding or the curriculum or whatever it yeah. may be, we're thinking of youngsters with send as one homogenous group. And that's really problematic um, uh, and potentially <laughs> mm. uh, potentially means we inadvertently do the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, so we need to think about that. Co-production is important. I mentioned that before. Um, you, you know, when I talk to families, one of the things that often comes back to me from them is the things that are going to make a difference for them and the, their children aren't the, the, the really costly programs and mm. interventions. It's the phone call at the end of the day, which yeah. means that they can join up what's happening in school, what's happening at home. Um, so it's the little things that probably don't cost anything apart from time, which mm. you know, I suppose does have a cost, um, but that's easier for schools to provide. I talked about the Senko and deployment of that, but the last thing I would say is technology. 
I see a lot of schools spending money on um, things like assistive technology, you know, so voice-to-speech technology, uh, sorry, voice-to-text uh, technology and so on. Um, and actually, when, when you look into it, lots of schools have things like uh, Microsoft uh, Office or Apple products, and they, built within them, mm. have a lot of really um, inclusive technologies which, which work for everybody, but yeah. particularly open out the curriculum. But often teachers don't know about them mm. because they're so busy with the day-to-day reality of teaching. Yeah. Um, so I would say, actually, what have you already got? And that could free up some money that mm. you don't have to spend. That could be spent on something, uh, yeah. something more effective. So that, I suppose there's a whole range of things there, mm. but um, all of those together could make a difference. That's really, really helpful. And what, what can we um, expect from the upcoming uh, Send Review from government? Well, they've been very guarded, haven't they? Uh, um, uh, I hoped you'd. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, everyone seems to think I have the inside track mm. on these things. But, uh, um, well, look, we, we, we know that the reason for the review is that uh, the principle that we keep hearing, it's been repeated by government a lot, is that the reforms that came in in 2014 were the right reforms, they had the right principles underpinning them, but it's not quite worked in reality mm. the way people expected. Now, lots of reasons for that, of course. It's happened at a time when school budgets are decreasing, so you know it, it's hard to implement new things then. It, also, I think it wasn't tightly enough tied in to some of the bigger system changes. If you think of mm. academisation, for example, yeah. the SEND reforms were almost dwarfed by academisation. Yeah. Would it have made a difference if we tied in some of what we wanted to achieve around the SEND reforms into the academy conversion process? Would that have made a difference? Mm. So I think it's the wider things which have made, uh, made, it, made it difficult. But the SEND review itself, I think, will be thinking, what are the big changes coming up now? How can we tie in those reforms that haven't yet got to where they need to be to those big changes that are coming now? And my sense is that full academisation now is probably back on the agenda. I've not yeah. heard that confirmed no, from government. No. That's just my reading of the situation. Um, so I think there'll be a big focus on that. I think they'll look at processes mm. um, and the bu- bureaucracy of the system. Yeah. You know, a lot of families are saying they're having to work really, really hard to get what they think should be, uh, you know, a basic need uh, met uh, and it shouldn't be that hard yeah. and that's created work for everybody yes. um, and, and actually a, a difficult atmosphere for mm. everybody and I don't, I don't think we want that so I think they'll be looking at the process and in particular the, um, the fact that we currently have if you like 150 odd templates for the request to assess process exactly. leading to an EHC plan and you know if you're a school that's drawing from four or five different local authorities mm. and you're dealing with all these different variations Actually, that's that's really difficult. And as you say, if you're in a trust and you're operating across multiple well, local quite. authorities, and it means you can't. It, it then means you can't look very easily strategically at the profile mm-hmm. of need you've got and align things like your professional development offer to that yeah. because you've got all these different um, uh, formats. Um, now, critics of that, of course, will say, "But ah, but that's a, that's about individualisation and personalisation of need." My own personal view would be if we can't create a national template that has sufficient mm. flexibility built within it, we haven't got a very good template. No. Uh, but, so I think they'll be thinking about that. They'll be looking at outcomes, mm. um, not just academic outcomes, but I think a broader notion of outcomes and actually what do we want uh, for, for outcomes for children and people with SEND. Um, because if we don't know what we want as an outcome, how can we possibly put in the, the provision, mm. uh, if you like? Um, and so experience of families. I, but for me, the thing I hope they look at um, is, as I said before, SEN support, because I think that is at the root of all of these uh, 
challenges that we've got because if we don't get it right for them there is this I call it EHCP drift mm. uh, if you like you know we've gone from 2.8% of pupils with uh, education health and care plans three years ago and that was the same level for the 10 years before that and it's now 3 3% 3.1% 3.2% and that is where the high needs budget mm. is really coming under pressure so yeah and in, ad in addition to the sort of phenomena that you kind of mentioned there, the um, SEND population in the UK is, is continuing to, to grow. Um, as we've mentioned there, fun funding is stretched, um, workforce also stretched. Um, what would you like to see, I mean, if you, if you were in charge, to, <laughs> to plan, plan for the future and, and create some really big changes to the system? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, you're right, the, the, the proportion of youngsters with uh, SEN is, is growing and I think the complexity of need is mm. also growing because you've got advances in healthcare now and health sometimes get a bit of a bad press but you know yeah. they've been doing such a good job in some senses that you've got mm. young people now surviving longer who are now coming into our schools but we've got mm. a fixed number of state funded special schools if anything it's gone slightly down over the yeah. last 10 years so the, the number of places there is, is kind of fixed and so you've got um, more complex needs now in our special schools and students that would have been in our special schools 10 years ago now might be in our mainstream schools so it's more complex mm. right across the board so we need to do something different now we can't do what we did 10 years ago because the whole profile of need is different so what would I do I think the first thing I'd do is is look at how do we make sure we have one continuum of provision in some ways it's quite unhelpful to have these kind of kind of segregated types of schools so we've got a mainstream a special alternative provision, the PRU, uh, actually it's just one continuum of provision uh, and my sense is that wherever you kind of start in the system it should be more fluid in terms of mm. how you can move from one to the other. If we do end up with full academisation one of the opportunities there is that if you've got a multi-academy trust which has different types of provision within its trust yeah. actually they can move students around more freely because maybe they do need some special school input but they only need it for certain subjects or only need it for certain times yeah. of, the, of the week or the day you know and so actually they can start to access different bits of uh, the curriculum that work 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 for them so I'd, I'd like to see a more um, uh, fluid approach to mm. to the school system and structures the thing I'd like in mainstream schools in particular is protected time for SENCOs the variation between the amount of time that SENCOs mm. get you know big secondary school and you've got one SENCO who's kind of full-time Kind of senko with no class teaching time and, and in another school they've got you know two hours or something or, or no yeah. time and they're having to do it after school or so, you know that, that can't be right mm. you know and, and i think we do a disservice to our young people um uh, but by, by, by having that massive inconsistency in the system because that just creates a kind of postcode lottery of it depends which school i go to to how much time yeah. the senko is going to have for me and, we can't, and, and that's not fair yeah. um, so i i would like to see uh, uh funded senkos full-time in every school um, now i get that in some schools they're smaller and maybe you don't need that fine mm. but certainly i think a principle of saying we should have protected time which is funded uh is is, is a good place to go well yeah i think i mean that's it's really interesting um well let's hope they do <laughs> i hope so too. put you in charge uh because as you say the 
really does seem to be so so much pressure in the system. It'll be interesting to see what what comes out of the review and 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 funding to follow. And is there anything you'd like to draw listeners' attention to um, forthcoming from Nason, or or anything that you're working on that you'd like them to know? Oh, about? there are there are always many things. I, I I would just say to colleagues listening that if you're not a member of Nason already, why not? <laughs> uh, you know, there are, there there is a free version as well, so it doesn't need to cost you anything. But in terms of what's coming out of Nason. Um, uh, in particular, I, w- I, w- I would draw people's attention to the fact that we're going to be launching our 10-year strategy uh, later this year. Um, so it's well worth watching out for that. And it's likely we're going to be launching at our annual conference, Nason Live, uh, which is held in the Midlands uh, in the beginning of July. Uh, well worth coming along to that as well if you're in the area. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Adam. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of the Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions. <laughs>